0: I want you to open your Bibles. We're going to start in Philippians 2 in a moment. But I'm going to do a little bit of an unusual thing today. Uh, It's Thanksgiving weekend. We're talking about gratitude as Steve shared in his prayer. Um, But here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to share with you what I am not grateful for inside America because it has led me to some things that I am grateful for that I don't think I would have been grateful for had I not lost something. So let me share with you what I'm not grateful for in America and then we're going to come to the scripture and look at a couple things that out of this I think cause deep gratitude and correct gratitude and a better, out of that gratitude, direction for the church to go. I'm not grateful for the change I've seen in my own lifetime. I... uh, when I went to school growing up, we, no one knelt during the Pledge of Allegiance. We uh, read the Bible every day. We prayed as part of the opening of school. I remember having to memorize in school, not in church. I mean, we certainly had to do it in church. But I remember having to memorize in school, 23rd Psalm. It was the basis of a great deal of what we did in school in that day was a safe place to be, uh, and those things were legitimate. You grew up understanding, I don't think everybody in my day growing up was a believer by any stretch of the imagination, but we did grow up understanding the Judeo-Christian idea, the Bible's true, God's there, He's legit and you can have a relationship with Him, were in fact paramount inside the school system. Now the key to that was then we had an authority. Now. We had an authority above us for our morals. and Therefore, they were high. Uh, Television, when I grew up, was good. It was clean. As a matter of fact, it was interesting. Um, All the sitcoms, the kids actually thought the parents were smarter than they were. Kind of the reverse today. Kids were not obnoxious. They did crazy things, but they were not obnoxious. They were not disrespectful, belligerent, and horrible inside the home. It's equally interesting in that there were at least four shows. Andy Griffith was one, and then there was another show. I can't remember. I think it was Family Affair. But it was interesting because in both shows, both fathers were widowed, and they were raising their children. Andy raising his kid in a very country setting, not a lot of money, just barely making it. And then you had a family affair a guy raising a, a girl and a son, a daughter and a son uh, inside a very rich enclave. They had their own butler, they lived inside New York. So you had these two different things along with two or three other shows, but the shows were all very clear that the father was a legit idea and that a father would never abandon his children. Matter of fact, that he would sacrifice in both shows. The fathers constantly sacrifice to rear their children up to be decent citizens in America. TV was clean. Uh, The trivia question of life is, see how smart you are today, what show was the first time that a woman in TV was allowed to wear capri pants. Anybody know? Dick Van Dyke. How many times the show could she wear them? Once. Now, i got to admit, I grew up in this day, and I don't remember my mom, like Leave it to Beaver, with pearls and a dress every day. got to admit, it was a little over the top, but there was some decency on TV, and there really wasn't anything you couldn't let your kids watch. Admittedly, we only had three channels, and... Well, when the president was on, your life was shot. But nonetheless, uh, that was television. Even the music was, what's a word I want to use, morality affirming. There was a black group, I think, called the Winstons. I can't remember the exact name. Their song was big hit. I think it reached number two on the charts, big hit. Color Him father talked about a african-american dad who came home who worked hard who taught his kids the golden rule loved their mother taught his kids to live right and the whole thing all these sacrificial statements in the song and the refrain was I think I'll color him father we were safe in that day there was nowhere a kid couldn't ride his bike parents sent you to the store, they were never worried about you being kidnapped, never worried about you being taken, never worried about you being hurt. You could ride your bike anywhere, you could walk anywhere, any part of town, you were safe. There were no school shootings. It's interesting. If you look back and Google the history of school shootings, what you will discover is there are some school shootings, 1700s, 1800s, early 1900s, but every single one of them. For example, here's one example. I think it was in 1838. A kid's brother had been viciously abused by the teacher. He comes in the next day with a gun because people had all sorts of guns back then. He shot and killed the teacher in front of the classmates, but he was acquitted because of the meanness of his teacher consider defense. There were no multiple shootings where a kid came in and just killed randomly tons of kids in the classroom. If it was a shooting, there was always a singular purpose, and it happened inside the classroom, but there was nothing like today. Then in a span of 10 years, three significant events happened. Number one, in 1963, The Supreme Court declared that you couldn't read the Bible and couldn't pray in school anymore. Now, that does two things. Number one, it gave the federal aspect of our country control over our schools, which they should not have. There are really two schools in America, government and public. There's not public and private, there's government and public. So they took control of our schools with that singular act, but the other thing is they took the authority for what we believe out. So that now, without that Bible and without there being a God, you determine right and wrong. You know how you determine it? By a vote. Truth and morality can never be determined by a vote. It has to be determined by a God we are alienated from and need to be connected with. So we lost that. 1963. And you got to remember... When the supreme court makes these decisions it's because prior to this there's all sorts of stuff swirling in our culture that drives it into the supreme court number two in 1973 we had roe v wade now you need to understand the significance of that it is not an argument of truth which is the amazing thing to me about what the supreme court did Ostensibly, you have nine of the smartest people in the world, but it was the dumbest decision ever because it is a decision based on visibility. Every day tomorrow in this country, every single day, tomorrow, even today, obviously, but every day, we'll go with tomorrow. There'll be hospitals that a mother and the husband will come into and they will have a baby that will come out prematurely and they will take that baby, put it in a special section of the hospital and they will spend literally thousands of dollars to make sure that little guy or gal makes it to the development of the lungs, makes everything and gets to a point where the parents can take the child home. If the mother or the father or the doctor or the nurse does harm to that child, once it's left the mother's womb, they will go to jail, and by the way, rightfully so. However, equally tomorrow, around the corner from that hospital will be a clinic that will, at the same stage of development, because the mother has paid money, will go into that mother's womb, I'm not going to describe because we have children here and it's vile, but there are basically two ways in which it's done, and in a horrific manner will kill the child. Same stage of development, the only distinction is, and it will be legal, we will not do anything to them because Roe v. Wade said it was okay. Basically, it said to a mom, if this child in you is inconvenient, you can kill it. And so all around the corner will be clinics where a mother will kill the child, will pay a man to kill the child inside. And I'm tired of us blaming the doctors. It's the moms that are making the choice. So she's choosing to kill an inconvenient child, and it's legitimate even though it's at the same stage of development. And the only difference between these two children is what? You can see this one. You can't see this one. It is a visibility argument. It's not an argument of truth. It's not an argument of life and conception. It's an argument of visibility, which is the genius, unfortunately, a satanic genius, of partial birth abortion. You pull everything out except the head, so you can't see it. And then you pull the brains out of the head, let the head collapse, and pull it out of the canal, so basically you didn't see it. It's one of the most vile things we do as a culture. So Roe v. Wade legitimized that an argument not based on scientific truth but based on one thing. Can I see the child? If I can, it's a child. If I can't see it, it's a fetus. And I can do whatever I want with it. That's Roe v. Wade, 1973. In between those decisions, and again, you've got a society that is swirling with all this idea. Because I grew up hearing sermons lauding, lauding the intrinsic, innate love of a mother for a child, and now we have a Supreme Court that has responded to the demands of our culture that a mother, if she can't see the child, be allowed to take its life when in fact it is inconvenient. And so, in between those two dates, 63 and 73, is the first real horrific moment. I think it may have been a warning from God of what we were doing, but I think we ignored that warning, obviously, and continued with where we were going. But in 1966 was when, I think it's Charles Whitman was his name, stood in the tower on the UT campus and just slaughtered people with no purpose, not because somebody beat up his brother. He just slaughtered people indiscriminately. And after 73, when we declared as a society, we don't value life anymore. And there's no authority for what we believe. When we declared that by the (laughs) Supreme Court, we now are at a different day. If you hear tomorrow, Dad, there's a school shooting and several children have been killed. Hopefully, it will sting your soul. But my bet is it will not shock you. Whitman was shocking. I remember at age 14 being shocked that anybody would get on a tower with a rifle and kill people. But today, I would not be shocked at all because now it's commonplace. And it's commonplace because we're a society without the authority of a God, without the authority of a deity, if you want to put it in a real speculative manner, we don't have the authority of a deity to tell us what's right and wrong, and we have no problem that the woman who should be the very epitome of lovely enough now can take an inconvenient child, and it's no big deal. And everything's gone downhill since. You can't allow your kids to watch TV indiscriminately anymore like we did when I grew up. You don't dare do that. I read the other day. This is disgusting. Let me tell you. You know what HBO stands for? Hell's Box Office. That's what it stands for. They now have a show called Westwood, which was based on Westworld, which is based on a show I grew up, movie watching with Yul Brynner, Robot, all this stuff. But they actually, on TV the other day, pretty much primetime, had a Four minute. This is their description. Here's amazing thing, even the liberals are decrying this, that a four-minute orgy between robots and people on TV from HBO. You cannot anymore let your kids indiscriminately watch TV. You can't walk into Walmart or Target. Or anywhere, without making sure you hold your child you can't let them just ride their bike anywhere because we're no longer a safe society I'm always amazed when people say to me you feel safe in Israel let me tell you something I feel way safer in Israel than I do in this country our music is vile <laughs> I love the hypocrisy of people, and I'm worn out with the hypocrisy. I'm not defending Donald Trump. I will never defend him, so understand that as long as we are on the subject. Because I think as an evangelical Christian, I have a responsibility to call for character in people, and I will not back down from him or Hillary or anybody else that does an evangelical character. So don't take what I'm about to say incorrectly today and leave and say something about me that is not true. But I was amazed when the thing came out with Trump and Billy Bush and all the things he said. <laughs> and then Michelle Obama came out, and, I, I'm just repulsed by this man's language. When she has Jay-Z and Beyonce and every other kind of person like that in the White House whose lyrics I would not dare read in this room right now. So we kill each other today our children are not safe, our music is foul, our TV is foul so I'm not real grateful for all that now I know you're sitting out there going well this is one fine sermon thank you for depressing me before I go home we do have Xanax and Valium and whatever you need when you leave Uh, we're passing it out for free today called our doctors, they're good. I know that. But let me tell you something. It's led in my life to a couple things I am richly grateful for that have transformed my understanding of the gospel in my culture. Here's the first one. Look in Philippians 2, verse 14. I love this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world by holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Here's the first thing I'm grateful for. I know America's gotten bad, and I think we all know that, and I understand that, I get that, I don't like it, but let me tell you the good thing about it. If we hold this book fast, we shine better than we've ever shined in this country. I don't think we shine that well, even when virtually everybody in the community was at least church. Not believers, but church. Listen, right now, we shine better than we ever have. There is a massive contrast. When you do it right in your home and they don't, they see it. When you treat people right and they don't, they see it. When you can forgive people and they can't, they see it. When we don't whine about who gets elected, listen, they see it. We have the chance now to actually be lights in a dark and decaying world that we did not have before. So I am grateful for that, and it's time to quit whining and quit bellyaching. We are in a tough world, but we are therefore brighter than we have ever been if we hold fast to this book. So there's the first thing I'm really grateful for. Here's the second thing that has really helped me. In Ephesians chapter 2, listen to what he says. Take a quick left if you're in Philippians. To the left, second chapter. Now, here's the second thing that it's really brought me, and I got to make a confession here in a moment, but here we are. Chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. The course of this world would be what? Culture. Following the culture of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Not Donald Trump. Who is that? Satan. What did he just say? That the culture... They're going to laugh at us outside this room, okay? The culture we live in is controlled by the enemy. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire, and then he goes through this long thing about, but we have been saved, we've been changed, we've been seated in the heavenlies, where his workmanship. Boom. Here's the second thing I'm grateful for. All this change I've got to make a confession here, has reoriented my own understanding of the purpose of the church. Now, I'm embarrassed to have to admit this, but this is where I was for years. Because I came out of a culture that seemed to be obviously compliant to what I believed as a Christian. When the shift began to hit and really hit hard, I bought into the argument and I'm embarrassed to say this but i got to do it because I've preached some of it here. I bought into the argument that we needed to make sure our culture didn't go into decline and that as Christians we need to stand and hold our culture up and that we would do that and I got involved in all this we would do that by political change. Now want to be careful here we have people in this church that serve well from our city council here to our school board here to our congress here we have people that serve well and do it right and are lights in our culture but it's helped me realize And I want to be careful how I say this. It is not my vote that will change my culture. It is how well I pray that will make a difference in my culture. And my job, our job as a church, is not to change our culture. Our job as a church is to walk in the middle of our culture, holding fast to the truth, verbalizing that truth, and pulling as many people as we can along with us until the day we see Jesus again. Our job is not to change the culture. Our job is not to fix the culture. I've thought that because I came out of a culture and watched it change. I thought, oh my goodness, we need to change it back. No, 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 no. This culture is controlled by Satan. So it's not my vote that's going to overwhelm him. It's my prayer. Your vote has never made any... Hasn't made that much of a difference anyway. The Republicans have never done what they said they'd do, and the Democrats have done everything they said they'd do. As a result, we now have a Supreme Court that's declared that a 58-year-old man can marry an 18-year-old boy. We have no definition of marriage and such. If you watch any TV shows, we're watching, Peggy and I were watching, we love uh, Chicago Fire, we're watching the other night. Sure enough, the guy, the big moment scene. Romantic scenes so will guy ask the girl to move in with him. There's no thing of marriage anymore We don't do that anymore. It's whether or not we live together. We have Lost our moral structure. We're not going to change that by voting in a particular party We're going to change that by how well we pray Because my bet is In my own life and I'm talking about me not you I'm talking about me When I look in the mirror I think I voted better for candidates than I prayed for candidates. And if that's true about me, it's one reason in my life that our parties have not done well because I have voted better than I prayed in the Bible. Although I think voting is a mandate for us, but the Bible really doesn't talk about voting, but it surely talks about praying. Why? One of two reasons. Either God's giving me busy work because he's bored with what I'm doing, or he thinks that my prayer can alter the situation I'm in. I think if I vote better than I pray, then probably there's something wrong. And so it's helped me realize, and I'm grateful for the change, seriously, because it's helped me come to the point where I'm not going to try to change my culture anymore. I'm going to vote, I'm going to pray, do everything. But my main motive now is that we as a church simply step into our culture not to change it, but to inform it about the only hope they really have, the blood of Jesus Christ. That's our job. So I'm grateful. And I'm grateful for one other thing. Matthew 24. I want you to listen. In the beginning in verse 6. You will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, families and earthquakes, the beginning of birth pains. Then he drops down in verse 10. Many will fall away, betray one another, hate one another. False prophets will arise, lead many astray. Lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. The one who endears the end will be saved. The gospel will be claimed throughout the whole world. Then look at this. All inside a connection. Now, remember, when the Bible is written, there's no verses, no chapters, so this is all part of a context. Now, listen to what he says. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that's hard for a lot of us, but what happened was a, a, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes in the early first century B.C. came in and slaughtered a pig on the altar of the temple, and they went nuts. So there's this attack on the temple. Let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. It goes on and on and on. Uh, and, and then look in verse 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now... and then, I'm sorry, I meant to read verse 21, then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, there are a lot of people that take this section 15 on as a reference to Titus sacking Jerusalem, destroying the temple, and then going up and the people of Masada killing themselves. But when he says there will be a tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, it couldn't be Titus. It's something on the way. Now here's the other thing that I am unbelievably grateful for. Jesus was precise 2,000 years ago. It's interesting to me how this works out. There's a verse in the book of Acts which indicates that the gospel was headed back to the Middle East, but God stopped it and moved Paul into Rome, into Europe, and ultimately to here, where we became the nation that sent out missionaries as a result of that we've had all sorts of wars you say well that's always been a prophecy and that's absolutely right we always have one little caveat though all the wars were basically European based until today Israel came home UN charter 1948 recaptured Jerusalem in the 60s and now today the wars that we hear about are centered around Israel. We don't have a World War I, Three, us against Germany. That would never happen. The European continent is now pretty secure from war. We don't fight each other. Nobody's trying to take each other over. The wars are now, for the first time, Middle East, which is why Jesus says, let those in Judea worry, because the last battle will be on, if you stand on Mount Carmel, And here's Nazareth over here. And if you stand on Mount Carmel and you look at the valley of Megiddo, that's the last battle. And we are now in the first time in history when the wars are centered around Israel where they've always been European. They're not European anymore. Now they're there. Ezekiel, I'm going to bring my people home. When you look at the fact they came home in 48, they got their capital back, and it's the perfect timing. The Muslims own... They have a dome on the rock on top of the temple. If a man showed up today and looked at Israel and said, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. I'll make sure Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Yemen, Iran, Iraq, I'll make sure every one of those guys doesn't bother you, and I'll give you back your temple if you'll fall under my leadership. They do it in a heartbeat because they have no idea today who they are in God. And that is exactly what the Bible teaches. And then in the middle of those seven years, the Bible teaches the Antichrist would do exactly what Antiochus Epiphanes did. He will violate the temple and the Jewish nation will go, oh, he's the enemy. And the Bible teaches in Revelation they will fall under the feet of Jesus Christ. And for the first time since Joshua's day, the entire nation will be right with a God that called him out of Egypt that day is around the corner and I am grateful for that truth so bad times in America? yeah but I'm grateful we shine better I know better how to live and he's not just on the way back He's around the corner and that is great news because when he comes back this is all fixed let's pray Father we do live in a hard country in a country that was not what I grew up in but Father thank you thank you that we shine well thank you that I know what to do in the middle of it and I'm ashamed that I did not. I was caught up more in what my culture taught than what your word said. But Father, I do thank you again. You're close to coming. Father, I believe that if I don't live to see that day, I certainly think my grandkids in this room We'll live to see that day. And I'll meet him in there. So thank you for who you are. And no matter what anybody says, you still rule. In the name of your son who gives us the chance to be your child, I pray that. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed. You never met Jesus. And the great horror for you is that the only heaven you know will be here and the only hell we will know will be here. It is the key distinction. So if you don't know Christ, we'd be glad to share with you how to find him today. God's calling you to be a part of this fellowship. Whatever decision the Father lays on your heart through his spirit as he speaks to you this morning you come.